You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Otis Holloway, who serves as a stabilization advisor at the U.S. Department of State. Otis was raised in a working class neighborhood in Douglasville, Georgia. And while his father moved to Miami when he was in grade school, Otis notes that he still played an active role in raising him. A student athlete, Otis accepted a full scholarship to Trinity College in Connecticut, and when he landed on campus, it was a complete culture shock. Not only were his classmates alumni of prestigious boarding schools like Choate and Exeter, they claimed that they literally could not understand him in class discussions, given his Southern accent. But Otis forged ahead, majoring in political science and studying abroad in South Africa. He spent his first year out of school working in the mayor's office in Atlanta and then set his sights on graduate school, enrolling at American University, where he realized that there are countless opportunities and resources for graduate students that he just did not know were available to him. But it wasn't too late. Otis was awarded a fellowship that sent him to Mozambique, where he learned Portuguese and assisted a team of policy analysts and economists in advising the country's government. He graduated from American with an MA in International Peace and Conflict Resolution. And while Otis first entered the State Department as a contractor, he has since taken on the role of stabilization advisor with a focus on East African nations. Now, as you can imagine, Otis's work has taken him to some dangerous places, and he's passionate about his career, but he has some goals he wants to achieve right here at home as well. And we get into all of that. So without further ado, please enjoy. Otis, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm Gucci. How you doing? Oh, man, it came that Georgia came out of you right away. <laughs> I'm well, thank you. Can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love it. I feel like we talk a lot about this on the show. People from Detroit and people from Georgia who come on the December 26th podcast, like that energy from where they're from, like it just comes out immediately. And I love the authenticity. Right. I try to do what I can. <laughs> you know, a lot of time is is difficult to like code switch naturally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do it naturally, but it's like hard for me to do it on purpose. For sure, I understand. Well, well, listen. There's a lot to unpack here in your story, so let's get into it. Tell me, who is Otis Holloway? I'm a person that's striving hard to improve my community, Black people throughout the world. Actually, someone that wants people to do better, especially Black folks, as far as do well with their money, and then also just make better decisions um, as much as possible. Know our history, know our cultures, um, possibly know different languages, be able to communicate with one another better, and really just try to set an example for my family and my community. Now, I know generally when people have a passion for the advancement of our community, oftentimes that is birthed out of their own story, their own challenges, their own experiences. So tell me a little bit about young Otis. What was your life like growing up? I had a good childhood. Um, Grew up in a working class neighborhood. I come from Douglasville, Georgia. I was there from like nine until I went to undergrad. My mother still has her house there. So I go there when I go back home. I still call Douglasville home. I so I fly to Atlanta and drive there. 
Um, but prior to living in Douglasville, I was in Marietta. I was born in Marietta. Both of my parents are from Miami. Three years before they had me, that's when they moved. And really just being someone that went back and forth, spending summers in Miami, seeing like how Black people live there, but also understanding how Black people lived in Atlanta, and then also how Black people lived in Atlanta and Marietta and Douglasville. Um, it was real interesting. Just And then also going to undergrad um, in Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, where most of my fellow students had went to prep schools or private schools. And just knowing the big difference as far as just understanding culture, understanding the difference between different economic classes, the conversations that people were having at the table with their families from like three to 15 looked much different from what I was used to going back home in Miami or going back home to Douglasville. So just seeing those differences and then even studying abroad, I'm like one of the, (laughs) I'm like black people are the same everywhere, right? Like, you could uh, maybe people have different clothes, speak a different language, but I feel like a lot of cultural instincts or how we communicate, how we laugh is very similar. So, you know, that's really my upbringing uh, coming up from a predominantly black working class neighborhood like Douglasville. I just always felt like I should be proud of my community and I should try to get back when I can or any opportunities I can. And then even in DC, I try to be a role model or speak to kids when I have an opportunity. So, you know, growing up in in that working class environment, but then ending up in Connecticut, which I definitely want to get to how you ended up going to school in the Northeast. But was there was there a heavy emphasis within that community and within your household on education and academics oh, and like setting goals for what life's going to look like post high school graduation as well? Yeah, definitely for uh, college. Uh, I think with both of my parents being educators, my dad taught middle school 20 years. My mom has been in like pre, pre-K pre um, since before I was born. And, you know, I'm over 30 now. So education was always something that was important. And then even growing up, my parents weren't together in the same household. Hmm. My dad was in Miami. My mother, when it was any situations where I didn't understand a math problem for homework, she would tell me to call my dad, who was in Miami. And my dad would work on the math problems with me until I got him. Uh, So education, going to college, that was something I was already, it was already predetermined. It was like, okay, this is the path they're going to. And what prompted you to decide, okay, I'm going to leave Georgia and look at school opportunities outside of, you know, the area that I grew up in. Man, I felt like college was supposed to be something new. Mm-hmm. Something fresh. Um, like I said, I've been back and forth Georgia and Florida. I visited Tennessee once, visited Alabama a couple of times. And I was like, man, I need to actually get out of my bubble, learn something new, go to New England. So I knew I was, I was going out of state. I wasn't sure where. Uh, my first, my first priority school was like Howard, and then Hampton, the second choice. I visited Hampton. Honestly, I felt like it was a bougie school, 
And mostly it was coming from the top, though. It was coming from, like, the dean or president at the time. Uh, I thought the students were cool. They they were swagged out. I liked the clothes they were wearing. Uh, a lot of good-looking people. Um, but I was familiar with the school I ended up going to in Hartford, Connecticut, Trinity, because my dad went to Tufts in Medford, Massachusetts, and they're in the same athletic conference. So Trinity, when I compare and contrast to the HBCUs I was looking at, offered me a full ride. So I never visited the campus, but I went. Um, and at the time, of course, I'm leaving a predominantly Black public school in Douglasville, Georgia. So it was a huge culture shock um, going to Hartford, Connecticut, especially being on Trinity's campus. One, it was the economic class. Um, I had never, I thought money was like people wore Hollister and Abercrombie. I was like, oh yeah, they got money. They wearing, they wearing these nice uh, material, whatnot. But then going there, learning about LLB, learning about choke a cat. Well, not choke. I'm thinking about power or whatnot. But like these different academies, like Milton and uh, uh, Exeter. But Choate is a real school. I know people went to Choate. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. That's probably, okay. Somebody actually did go to Choate. So Mm -hmm. like, and then hearing about like the private school system or prep school system that a lot of people in New York went to, even black people. So I was just like blown away that people were basically fed into small liberal arts schools already. And they had already had these communities, even if they were white, they were familiar with a lot of kids already before going to to Trinity College. And I was thinking the whole time, like, bro, like I'm the only one getting a real college experience here because I, I don't know anybody uh, fresh. So it was one, the economic class, the schooling. Two, it was, of course, regional differences. I remember first day I got to campus, um, I was talking to somebody. He said, oh, you from, uh, you're from the South, right? I was like, yeah, how did you know? He said, you said y'all. I was like, oh, okay. I thought everybody said y'all. And, mm-hmm. uh, so then it was another thing, just uh, I said the money, the the regional difference. And then I thought uh, Southern hospitality was just something people said. But literally, we're, we're nice in the South. We speak. Right. And in Connecticut, it wasn't so much, especially being at that school. Uh, I would have small classes with like eight or 12 students. and I would see someone on like the long sidewalk and rather than just speaking to me, knowing that they're in my same class, they'll look at the wall to act like they're entertained by the wall. So it was interesting dynamic, man. Um, And then especially music, you know, I grew up through the, the crunk era in that level and also the snap era. So going to, undergrad to tell in i'm looking to hear gucci i'm trying to hear like uh travis porter uh all of those guys and then everybody was heavy you know wearing their their like uh cultural differences on their sleeve in georgia everybody's black so mm-hmm. like the small minority community we had at trinity everybody was like oh nah like i'm Bayesian. or mm-hmm. Nah, I'm Bahamian or I'm Jamaican. And I was like, oh, okay. Like we, we had those same things in Atlanta, but everybody's black in Atlanta. And everybody <laughs> had a Southern uh, slur in Atlanta. So it was different uh, being up there and everybody wore the culture in the sleeve and then going to parties and just hearing like dance hall and soca that I wasn't hip to. 
So it was a learning experience. Like I love dance hall now. I love Afrobeats as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, just then it was a huge culture shock that I wasn't ready for. But, and I do want you mentioned Abercrombie and Fitch and Hollister, but I, I also want to talk about like what were you wearing at the time, especially coming from Crunk and Snap era Atlanta. What clothes did you come to campus wearing? I didn't wear Jabos. I was saying like Jabos. I was like maybe three years ahead. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what I was wearing maybe my freshman sophomore year of high school. But I was definitely wearing like more baggy clothes, like. I was wearing like Sean John, you know, I might have a Jordan t-shirt, but yeah, I, I mean, maybe Calvin Klein, but everything was baggy. And I think mm-hmm. most people, because I'm comparing more so with the uh, my my white fellow students, right? Because they were wearing like LL beans and everything was polo. Now we like polo in the South too, <laughs> you know, the black neighborhoods, but it was different. Like they just... They wake up in polo. <laughs> They're not going to uh, the club in polo for per se, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I was wearing, I was wearing that stuff, but everything was baggy. So I feel like it was very similar with the with the black students as far mm-hmm. as what I saw people from New York wearing and what I was wearing at the time. But yeah, that that was basically it. the biggest difference probably with the white students. And thinking about that, them having gone to the exiters of the world, these boarding schools that really prepare you to excel academically beyond high school, did you feel the difference in the classroom as well? You know, was it a different level of competitive competitiveness or did you feel that your high school really prepared you to be able to thrive academically in this environment? I thought I had the foundation as far as like the work ethic I needed and like understanding how to put a sentence together, right? Mm-hmm. But I knew that I, I needed help. You know, I think, um, especially like my first, it might've been, out of, maybe calculus. It might've been my first calculus class. Now I was a political science major. But that calc class, I think I got a D on my first test and they sent a, a letter home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I was like, so mom called me like, what, what's good? What you gonna do? Because they, they start threatening like that first, like it wasn't even like the midterms yet. They were like, yeah, like you, you in jeopardy of getting academic probation. I'm like, all right, well, something got to shape. So I just really just started really going to the TA classes, TA sessions, going to more office hours. But really, like I said, it was the work ethic, just knowing that, okay, I, I can handle it. It's, I know I'm smart. I just got to handle it. And so, of course, I was starting to put out better work, but like it wasn't it wasn't crazy. Now, granted, it's supposed to be a, an elite school, but like it wasn't crazy, like nothing I had seen before. And I felt like the only difference was because it was a liberal arts school, we had to speak more. And I felt mm-hmm. like I wasn't used to speaking in class or arguing my opinion in an academic way. So I, that was something I struggled throughout. With the Southern draw as, as well. Yeah, man. Uh, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, we, we had a seminar style, like first year class, mm-hmm. like 12 students. And, you know, I'm discussing different points or whatever, talking about the different readings. And maybe four weeks into school, my one-on-one with the professor, he's like, Otis, I think you have a lot of good ideas. Um, but I don't think a lot of the students understand what you're saying. Mm. 
And I'm like, bro, you let me sit in this class four weeks and you telling me that nobody can understand what I'm saying. So yeah, that was that, that was wild. But it was just like, okay, that's when I started changing how I spoke a little bit. And and when you've grown up in a community, you have this accent. This is how everyone speaks from where you are. And now it feels like an oddity in a new environment. How do you go about changing your pattern of speech? And let me just say before you answer that question, that statement around like people are having a hard time understanding what you're saying. I, to me, sometimes it feels like folks are being willfully ignorant. Yeah. Right? We, we've heard super thick accents where, and especially if someone is say from the South and they speak really fast, it's sometimes like, what, what did you say? Like, you know, I might've missed that. But oftentimes it's not even that. It's just kind of digging your heels in and saying, this person does not talk like me. Right. So I'm just, I'm not even going to try to understand what they're, what they're saying. And I feel like some of that could have been going on here. No, yes. Right. So, but how did you go about sort of saying, all right, let me, let me focus on this and change the way I speak. I don't know. I think I just started to listen how other people were speaking more mm-hmm. because I didn't, I knew people, different people had accents, but I didn't think too much of it. But when he pointed out my accent and then I was hearing from other students like, oh, hear Otis talk or, you know, uh, other, you know, women at the campus, they thought it was sexy or whatever. But I started noticing people were picking up my accent. So I started listening to it more. So of course, being back home, I didn't notice people had an accent. But now that I go back, I'm like, oh, OK, this thick accent reminds me of home. But I think I just started listening more and tried to like, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how, how I that out. Just like just working on it, I guess. Just just being in class and then trying to sound more like my classmates. But would not speak it through my nose. <laughs> not with that nasally or ending everything in a question mark. Exactly. Right. Um, and, you know, it's crazy that we get in these environments and we talk about this a lot on the show. It's like you have the work. If it, we're talking about college, just the work of taking care of the academics. But there can be this other layer of work of trying to figure out and assimilate has a lot of negative connotations, but how to thrive and function in this environment and coexist with people who are not like you, who can't relate to you mm-hmm. at all. And, and in certain institutions that can carry over into the black community as well. And and you mentioned students wearing their culture on their, their sleeve, but dressing like you and bringing that New York flavor uh, as well. Did you feel like you found a good sense of community amongst your black classmates? Yeah. I mean, it took a, um, it took a while, um, mm-hmm. probably like four or five weeks. Uh, you know, it was just, it was just different. Like I said, it was a culture shock. And then it was like first couple of weeks, I was like, okay, this is a lot different from home. I'm listening to Gucci, you know, for like 20 minutes, you know, basically just to relax and, you know, feel comfortable, right? And then I got cool with uh, my homegirl, Rolanda, and it was different, like having a female best friend at the time and knowing that playing football in the South, rolling with like seven, eight dudes to different parties, and then now, I'm essentially going to parties by myself. It was a big difference. Um, and then, you know, not really having study sessions. You know, I, I usually just, you know, did my homework by myself, but like getting used to like being in libraries with different people around. Um, and then also like just figuring out different study sessions, sometimes by myself, but also like with the TA. It was, it was, yeah, interesting. 
So going through that and really feeling like you don't have that click in the same way and also figuring out the work and keeping your grades up, especially with having gotten money from the school. Did you ever consider maybe this is not the right environment for me? Nah, I didn't. I think that whole like financial part, it was like, all right, this is it. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to make it work. Now, my dad, I think knowing both of our backgrounds, because, you know, he grew up in like the southern part of Miami, which is based like the sticks and, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of places. And knowing that I grew up in Douglasville and we're in the same type of college. And he was like, look, you don't have to stay here because he he made a choice too to just stick it through. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you don't have to stay here. You can actually transfer. And I was like, I'm here. Like, it is what it is. I, I just... I didn't think transferring was like something I wanted to go through. Like, I just felt like a lot. It, it would be a lot. And truth be told, like after those four or five weeks, I felt fine. Like I like joined a flag football team. And then like you mentioned my niche, like I like it wasn't just Rolanda, like my homegirl. It was also like, I also found like the Men of Color Alliance. Um, some upperclassmen were like real cool and receptive. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just started to like understand how the parties worked and all that. And just like the academic work, I just felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. And then like, I had a good meal plan too. So I was eating good. That, that meal plan, if you can, if you have the money to have a full meal plan at college is absolutely crucial. I was eating good. Well, <laughs> <laughs> did you put on the weight is the question. I, I, put, on, I put on the, uh, the freshman 10 or 15. I remember going back, uh, back home. And then my mother's, well, my, my homeboy's mother was like, Oh, you gained a little bit of weight. And then I got a funnier one. Um, I was hanging out with my homeboys from high school that winter break. And like, I took my shirt off. And now granted, these, all of us, we played football together. I took my shirt off and somebody's like, ew. (laughs) I was like, bro, what you mean? He was like, bro, you used to be swole. Like you, you like, you losing a little bit. Now granted, I didn't really work out. I might do some pushups here and there, but like, I was like, oh nah, I can't go out like this. So I literally did push-ups every day and I probably lost that 10 mm-hmm. at uh, the campus for that spring semester. <laughs> so so tell me how the study abroad opportunity came about and what drove you to choose South Africa. Man, that was like, that was one of the things I just thought about was part of college. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you study abroad? Oh, okay, I'm about to study abroad then. So I think that the end of my... No, springtime, sophomore year, I started going to different sessions, figuring out, okay, what needs to be done to get study abroad? What programs does my school offer? Um, So the programs that stuck out to me was like Cape Town. They had like something in Paris. They had something in Italy, Ireland, of course, China. And then they had, uh, I think those were the big ones. And I was like, oh, it's Spain. They also had Spain. So I'm like, well, when is another time I go to Africa? I feel like people go to Europe. When am I going to actually be like just at time to really just be in Africa? And mm-hmm. like, it was going to be my first time abroad. So that's really what it came down to. I'm like, I've been around white people enough. <laughs> like, it, like I said, it was the, the cultural shock and being there two years. I'm like, 
you know, I'm good with Connecticut. Let me go to Africa. I'll go to Europe whenever. Uh, and it's funny now because <laughs> I haven't really spent too much time in Europe now. I spent a lot of time in Africa. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, Cape Town, South Africa, that was, I was there six months uh, studying political studies. Um, when when we had our spring break, I went to Mozambique with a group of people. When I was in South Africa, I had a house. It was all mills. There was nine of us, like two guys from, from Germany. We had a guy from St. Martin, a guy from New Jersey. We had an Indian guy. We had a Persian guy. We had a server, uh, like a, a stereotypical white guy from uh, the Valley in California. It, it was just an interesting dynamic uh, because I learned a lot. We had three people in the house that didn't identify as straight. Mm. Um, and it was just, it was just cool, man. Like we, we helped hosted parties. We learned a lot about each other. Um, uh, we had, we met a lot of different people. Um, but yeah, and it was my first time abroad. So it was my first time cooking for myself, living off campus with no like parents around, no <laughs> guidance. So really just making your own decisions and like living abroad and really working with money too. That was another thing. I would, I wasn't too good with money when I was in Cape Town. So what was that like being within the diaspora and obviously seeing all these Black folks who are living life, but very different, a very different environment than where you might have grown up? So how did that open your eyes to the broader world? And that's a good question because Mm -hmm. that's when I identified as Black American. Mm -hmm. Like I was like, yeah, I'm not an African American because I feel like African-American denotes a little bit of uh, something that's not clear. Mm-hmm. Like some, yeah, it's, it's like clarify where, where in Africa are you from? And I also see that people on the Western Hemisphere, whether they be Brazilians, Cubans, Trinidadians, Jamaicans, Haitians, nobody says they're Black, whatever. They're from that place. And I know like they have a similar history as we do, we just ended up in America. Mm-hmm. So I, and I felt more American in South Africa than I ever did prior to my life. Like even engaging with my white American classmates, like I f- didn't feel there was too much of a difference mm-hmm. uh, from one of us. But with that being said, I still felt connection with the black South Africans. Like they would have similar jokes like, like, you know, Cape Town has the Table Mountain and Devil's Peak and they people go surfing and whatnot. And they'll say, yeah, black people don't hike. <laughs> like, what you mean? So, um, like, we, we had a lot of similarities about, like, you know, what our parents might allow us to do as far as black South Africans. But with that language barrier and, like, the cultural barrier, it's like, you know you're different. Mm-hmm. You, and it's like people can see your accent and like, okay, this person is American. And granted, you know, there are differences, especially economic, especially social. Like we're, you know, we're used to walking around and having access to Wi-Fi even then. Um, so like back then it was okay to have in undergrad to have like those little small black phones. Mm-hmm. But when I was in Cape Town, now, I wouldn't try that at Trinity, <laughs> but it was okay to do it uh, in Cape Town, South Africa. 
So did you feel, especially being in a house that was designed for students who were studying abroad and feeling your Americanness so much on display, did you feel that you were in, able to ingratiate yourself in the culture in some way? Um, I think people in South Africa, because I, I think I was given a pass already because I was Black, so I was good. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, in that part of South Africa, you don't have too many black people that look like me. Mm-hmm. With that being said, like West African features, uh, darker complexion. Now you do have Zulus that may look like that, but they're more so in the East. Yeah. So a lot of people thought I may have been a foreigner. And even recently you hear about uh, South Africans being xenophobic. Yes. Um, yeah. Against like other uh, Africans from different na- nations. So I don't, that became an issue a couple of times. Um, mm-hmm. Just like it was, it was a couple of racist, racist incidents that I hadn't experienced in America prior to until, and then when I experienced them, it wasn't from white South Africans. It was people that were either people that were like, they'll be identified as black in the States. Mm-hmm. So it was it the colored uh, people, what they would say in South Africa, or they were people that were my complexion. So it was, yeah, it was a little mind-boggling because I'm like, it, it was like, bro, if I'm not safe in Africa, in the motherland, like, where am I safe? Where, mm-hmm. like, where can a Black person be safe where we can just chill and people don't prejudge you just on, just on um, your content character? And I know you've traveled more, you know, since then, so I definitely want to get into whether there's been a differentiation. But before we do, let's talk about coming back to school finishing out your, your education at Trinity, did you have a really strict idea of what you wanted to do after school? No, but I did become more interested in international affairs for sure. Mm. I think that's what I was gearing to. I knew I wasn't about to pursue law school. I thought I would go to graduate school, you know, but graduating didn't really have and other opportunities. Now, I applied to different jobs, some in D.C., I think some in Connecticut, some in New York, some in Georgia, and nothing was really hitting. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I linked up with my godmother's pastor in Georgia after I graduated that I started interning with a council person that was in Atlanta. And then... Basically, I, I worked, I was doing so well there, they actually moved me into a full-time position in the mayor's office. So I did that for a year, but I still like had that idea that I wanted to, you know, do graduate school. I wanted to do international affairs and possibly learn another language. Hmm. So that's after the year I went to grad school at American. So you, you transitioned to American DC, which, you know, is politics central. Most people are in academia working on the Hill. Um, in that environment, did you feel your world open up in a way where I'm going to have way more opportunities when I get out of here? Or were you still feeling that there might be challenges to really launch a career in the way you wanted to? I knew there would be challenges, right? But the thing is, I became more aware of different opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like things I should have known probably in high school, um, as far as like pursuing political science or being interested in politics, I should have known about scholarships, 
fellowships, internships at Congress. I should have known about the different departments of the federal government, knowing that a lot of them offered internships and fellowships specifically for diverse candidates, Black Mm -hmm. candidates. So I didn't know that until I was in grad school and I just felt like, damn, I wish I I knew this. I would have been like way ahead of the game and I would have been perfectly positioned to like flourish in grad school, you know, possibly having a full-time job because I remember kind of trying to scrape by because remember undergrad, I had a full ride. Graduate school, they didn't give me anything. Mm-hmm. So I was able to get a couple scholarships here and there, but they really didn't make any difference for real. But I learned a lot about the State Department, learned a lot about like different fellowships, which I ended up taking advantage of one, which is the Barn Fellowship. And I studied abroad in Mozambique to learn Portuguese. I interned and, you know, one of the main languages I had to speak was Portuguese. And I lived with a host family there, went to university, taking classes in Portuguese. So even though American did cost me a lot of money and I'm still in debt, like I am thankful for it. Uh, because even a lot of my friends I met and then just understanding the opportunities and then also being able to say, all right, I, I've learned another language was pretty cool. I'm not going to say that it actually like measured up, like, <laughs> but I feel like it was worthwhile. And it's important to like actually bookmark this point. Because I think sometimes people have this belief like, oh, well, if your parents went to school, then you you have a leg up all the way around. They have an education. You're continuing the family tradition um, and you're able to level up. But oftentimes, unless you're going into the exact field that your black parents were in, we often still don't have the network or access to information to be able to go in and say, okay, if I can get this internship, if I can apply um, for this stipend or this endowment, like it's going to make my journey all the more uh, easy. And sometimes that information is just not available to us, even right. if you have parents in education or, you know, who've walked their own path within academics as well. Um, so, but shifting over to studying or taking this fellowship in Mozambique, how did that situation or that experience differ from what you experienced in South Africa? Well, you didn't see too many um, white people in in Mozambique. In South Africa, especially in Cape Town, it was more, they had tourist infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, Mozambique, it wasn't a tourist place. Like it wasn't for tourists. It was for Mozambique. It's people that speak Portuguese. So you might have people from Brazil there. You might have Portuguese people there, but it was like, it was, and then it, it was also like a conservative city. I was in Kutu, the capital. Like, believe it or not. So one, it was conservative where like, a lot of men and women would wear like long pants on the weekends when they're uh, going out to different things. And you didn't see women out at night by themselves. You wouldn't see a group of women just out partying. If any, if any women were out, they were either with their husbands or boyfriends, or they were deemed to be prostitutes. And mm. fortunately, there was rarely a gray area, just in my experience. And then just culturally, it was it was a little poor. So my money went a lot further. The the stipend I was getting, um, so I was able to do 
a lot of things but and not worry about money. I felt like I would always have money for food. Um, and then it was affordable to have like a maid in the house that you're staying in. Yeah, I mean, it was just Mozambique. They didn't have, they weren't, especially with language, because I, I, I appreciate your point about like language, people being willfully ignorant, because I feel like people should be strive to be cultured where they can understand despite the accent. They should, mm-hmm. you're speaking the same language, I should be able to understand what you're saying. Um, I actually take pride in like, if someone's just learning English, I can understand what they're trying to say. Um, even they don't speak my same accent, right? So in Mozambique, they're not used to people that don't speak Portuguese as a first or second language. Mm-hmm. So me speaking Portuguese, first of all, I'm not pronouncing words like exactly how they're used to hearing it. They're looking at me like, what is it you're speaking? Or they just tell me straight up, you don't speak Portuguese. <laughs> <laughs> But like I, I improved like over the time, right? But they, they would say like, yeah, you don't speak Portuguese, but it was a vast different, but they're not used to people not being able to speak Portuguese perfectly. Um, so comparing that to my time in Kenya, and I was just picking up little words here and there in Swahili, they have a terrorist infrastructure. So they're used to different people speaking Swahili that didn't grow up speaking it. Mm-hmm. Um, in Mozambique, it was just like, what is this? You're talking about your American. They didn't believe I was American. Like, I remember, um, you know, in, uh, in Latin, they say Estados Unidos for United States, right? So uh, I remember being at a party and I was dancing. Now, granted, like, I don't care where you're from, but you got to bring an A game. But <laughs> <laughs> like, so I'm dancing and then they're like, nah, he's not from Estados Unidos. Like, they said in Portuguese, right? They're like, he's from Estados Unidos de Nigeria. <laughs> Nigeria, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but it was like jokes here and there, but like they're assuming that all they see is what they know on television about Americans. But granted, it was the same thing in South Africa, but I think it was to a higher extent in Mozambique because they really didn't have any interactions with tourists. So you have this experience do you weight this experience better than your experience in South Africa or just different? It was different. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mozambique, it was cool because I learned so much. Mm-hmm. And I so that was my first time abroad, uh, first time on the continent. And it was cool. I, I was free for the first time, for real. Um, but Mozambique, being able to say I speak another language, so like, like being, being in a place and then like, Wow, I understand exactly what this person is saying. Mm-hmm. It was like it was mind blowing to me, even though I've been like training this whole time. So it's different. Another thing about Mozambique, it was like it was like a formerly communist country. Mm-hmm. So like it was you would hear like the street names were like Lenin, um, Michelle, like basically like African freedom leaders, and then like. Uh, or liberation leaders. And then you would also have like Mao, Mao Zedong, like Chinese leaders in Russia. I thought that was interesting, cool. But with that being said, it was just like really socially conservative. Mm -hmm. So you come back and end up working for the State Department? 
Yeah. Um, I started off as a contractor and I was, um, so basically I was able to get onto the state department through that contracting job. Um, because my friend, his landlord worked at the state department and my friend was like, Hey, Otis, you, I know you were looking for employment I, and you work in conflict because I went to grad school for international peace and conflict resolution. He's like, yeah, you do conflict. Uh, I think my landlord is in the same field. Would you like me to hook me up with him? So I'm trying to get full time. I'm working part time right now after I got back from Mozambique. And I'm like, yeah, man, please, or whatever. Now I'm thinking like, I'm not really thinking too highly of it because there's probably some type of conflict resolution this person does that's not international affairs related. It's probably like office setting conflict resolution. Man, this man worked for the Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. So within the State Department, which is like the perfect bureau for someone with my background um, as far as like conflict resolution. And basically I met, I did an informational interview with him and then he told me about a couple openings, job openings that were contracted positions. And I applied to both. I ended up getting one that allowed me to be a program assistant in the Africa office, which was a perfect place. I learned about programs and then, and also how to manage programs and monitor and evaluate programs and their effectiveness. So these programs I'm talking about are like extensions of U.S. foreign policy. So we have programs that let's say we want, we want communities to uh, different ethnic groups that have had tensions before to start working together. So we'll have youth, youth uh, playing soccer together of the different ec- ethnic groups to like build that teamwork and cooperation, look above ethnicity. And then we'll also have like dialogue programs between different stakeholders in those communities um, as well. So basically, and what, what the, the goal of basically trying to like reduce tension because we know those communities around election times always get into it. So hopefully we'll be able to build that social fabric before things escalate. So yeah, I did the programs and then like three months in, somebody I was working with was supposed to go to Kenya to help support the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi to help them observe the Kenyan election in 2017. For some reason, she wasn't able to go. And my boss was like, hey, Otis, would you like to go? I was like, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I'll go. I'll go to uh, Nairobi. It was all, like, King was already on my bucket list. And I thought the work would be cool. And that opportunity really, like, helped me, like, transition from just focusing on programs to actually working on, like, more subject matter issues, like, countering violent extremism, writing policy and memos as far as trying to prevent atrocities or even prevent electoral violence. And since that deployment, it was like two and a half months, I've like done like stints in Djibouti, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Uganda. So it's been it's been cool work. And I really enjoy it, especially being able to travel and to meet different stakeholders, whether it's like police, whether it's religious leaders, 
whether it's politicians, academics, students, um, civil society organizations, but really just understanding their perspectives, figuring out how do we better inform U.S. foreign policy or who do we need to engage? Like, does the secretary of state need to reach out to uh, this governor about a certain issue that's happening in his in his uh, jurisdiction? So just figuring out, okay, how can we have better policy to help improve the lives of people in those communities, really to reduce violence? And I think with State Department, our main focus is, of course, U.S. citizens living or being abroad, visiting abroad, but also to actually improve the host nation's indicators for like development as well as like democracy. So all of these places that you've traveled, at some point you became, you moved from the contractor space into a full government employee. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So how did that transition happen? Okay. So I didn't speak about the Boren Fellowship, uh, Mm -hmm. but cool thing about the Boren Fellowship, it, it gives you, it provides you a language, right? And then it also has a, you have to have a commitment to work for the federal government for at least two years. And then they help you get into the federal government by putting your resume, like you have a certain status. So now different jobs of the federal government can literally create positions for you. Mm. They call it schedule C status that you have. So basically you you become a temporary full-time employee. They create a position for you and they can hire you quicker than just bringing you on as a regular civil servant. So I did that. And then luckily, I think, was it last year? Last year, my temporary status ended and like I'm a full time civil servant. Like I, I was a civil servant already, but like now I can get all the benefits of being a civil servant. Mm-hmm. So thinking about the work that you do, your current title is stabilization advisor. Is that correct? Yeah. Which can mean so many things. But I want to talk about the work that you do with respect to conflict resolution uh, and stabilization against the backdrop of we're really where we are as a, 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 not only just a country, but the world. And there has been immense focus on the violence that is happening within the U.S. against Black people, against Asian people, um, against LGBTQIA+, all those things. And it's changing the conversation on the global stage in that while we've never had war on American soil, we absolutely have inflicted violence in other places and also can't uh, seem to quell the violence that's happening on uh, on our own grounds here in the U.S. So a lot of the criticism that you see online, anytime the U.S. starts to inject themselves in the conversation around how to reduce conflict in other places is exactly that. The U.S. is a violent place. We just don't have war here but we're trying to tell other people how uh, to resolve conflict abroad. What is your response to that, to the civilian that's having that conversation and discourse uh, on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I, I know, like, first of all, just being a Black person um, from, you know, just an underprivileged background, I feel that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I am not for the hypocrisy at all. And it is difficult sometimes when leadership uh, makes certain decisions that you feel like might be hypocritical of what you may have seen in 
your communities in the past, mm-hmm. um, especially when, when we concern funding. I think the State Department, luckily or unfortunately, does focus on U.S. foreign policy. Mm-hmm. So me being a State Department, State Department employee, but also like a diplomat, my first focus is foreign outside the states. So understand, I think the first line is, is just, you know, letting people know that, yes, we have our own issues, but we do, we work to improve them. You know, we have a transparent media society. We have a transparent social media where people have the right to criticize government actions. And a lot of these places, people do not have the freedom to do that. Right. And, you know, if someone gets killed, people can protest, people can pursue it legally and hopefully get some vindication, some type of justice there. But I think we do have a lot of advantages as far as like the arena of public scrutiny. Mm-hmm. You have those freedoms. And I think that's what United States foreign policy does lean on. It's like, yes, we have a lot of issues, but we're working to improve them. And we also acknowledge the strides that we've made thus far. And that's that's a great answer, by the way. Uh, but you have done this work abroad. Home base for you is D.C. right now. Are you still in a, in a position where you may have to leave the country at any moment for a specific project? Or are you now doing your entire job from from D.C.? I'm still in a position where I'm a stable stabilization advisor and Mm -hmm. I could go out to support different efforts, especially like uh, different policies or supporting embassies on trying to understand different conflict dynamics. So I'm still in that space. I think uh, like in sooner rather than later, I'll probably be in a place where I'll be more based in the States and I would only travel out maybe two weeks or so mm-hmm. to another country. So people will hear this. And I, I think when you have these kinds of jobs, it's always a bit mysterious to those of us who don't work in these environments. Uh, but working on something like conflict resolution and leaving the country to do so, to a layperson can feel dangerous. It just can. Do, do you think given the work that you've done within sort of these embassy environments or in a more controlled environment abroad, have you ever felt like I'm going somewhere where I could be potentially putting myself in danger? Yeah. um, That's always an issue, especially if people don't see a difference. Uh, That's the thing in Africa is is one thing you're in a place where you fit in and you don't have to worry about standing out um, amongst the communities. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that you you fit in, so like people don't might see you as a possible a possible person that is a part of an ethnic ethnic group or a different group that they have tension with. So that can be problematic, and I think that is a concern that I've had. And then there's also just places that may be subject to violent extremism you know, ter- a terrorist attack could occur. And, or you could get kidnapped. Mm. You could just be seen as a come up for people. So those risks are there. Um, but I mean, the, the best thing that you can do is almost like staying, you know, staying 
where you feel secure and where you know, like the security team that they have done their assessment, they tell you these are the safe places, these are the secure areas you can go. And there's some areas you might travel to where you actually can't leave the compound. The mm-hmm. embassy is like on a compound, and they say, "Yeah, you're not leaving here." So I, I met colleagues that done work in Somalia and also like a place like Niger, where if you leave the compound, you got to go with like three uh, military personnel. U.S. military personnel. So I think the security is there because it is whatever is necessary, whatever you feel like is necessary for the environment. But in places where like you may be subject to violent extremism or being kidnapped, like Nigeria, unfortunately, has that issue. Violent extremism, Uganda, while I was there, there were a few attacks. It's like you really want to stay... You want to like basically just keep tabs on everything when like a lot of military personnel, they try to say that they focus on making sure there's two exits. They want to know every restaurant they go to, they make sure there's exits. And you start to think like that, like, okay, if something happens, what can I do? And it's almost like living in a a city in in the States or living anywhere in the States, Mm -hmm. because things happen anywhere. We've also had terrorist attacks. People don't call... Uh, crimes against Black people, terrorist attacks, but I, I think they're the same thing. So I think that can happen anywhere, but you just have to, you know, pay attention to everything and just try to stay out of harm's way. And you mentioned, you know, this example on one end of the spectrum, like bringing two groups together to play on a team together or something like that. When we're talking about violent extremist groups, like being in very real danger in some of these environments to the extent that you can talk about it. What does your job look like then? That to me, that's very different than just what you described before. Like conflict resolution may be couched in a something that's a lot more intense. So what does your job look like when it's that versus let's bring some folks together to to play soccer or what have you? Now, that's a that's a good point. Is one is like reporting Reporting is a big thing because if you're on the ground, people see you as the subject matter matter Mm -hmm. expert back to Washington. So you got to report, tell people the details, what's the analysis on it, what should be concerned about, and what is the U.S. doing about it? Um, Other things are like knowing that it's a concern, also having like programs, not those dialogue programs, but more so working with the different governments different civil society to figure out, okay, let's understand these groups a little better. What is their their thought process? Who is joining these groups? How are they being recruited? Um, What areas are they recruiting from? So then we can target our programming, target our messaging a little better, and then also target local leaders to figure out, okay, how do we prevent people from being recruited? whether it's like maybe they don't have job opportunities, they feel like they may be better off just joining this unit. Maybe they're tricked. So maybe you just have to spread awareness about what's happening on the ground. Or you really just have to create a community that is welcoming of people to return. So you have people that maybe have been in the bush for a year or two, but you want to like promote that they can return back. They don't want to be in that bush. You know, they thought it might have been an opportunity for employment. So if you create, tell communities like, hey, it's actually better off 
you'll probably be subject to less violence if you welcome these people back, get these people that were involved in these terrorist groups in psychosocial support, and then also like dialogue programs where they could talk out like how they were recruited, what they were experiencing, and then try to align that with what whatever the security units are doing, but also have communities themselves benefiting because they actually know that it's better for them to accept these people back in to their communities. Um, That's kind of what the work looks like. You just have to think about it holistically and make sure that everybody's aware of what the issue is and how it can be prevented. And, you know, we have a lot of corporate folks on this show who talk about the barriers to being able to climb the corporate ladder and be elevated and advanced in their career as a Black person. And to, again, to the extent that you can answer the question, do you think those challenges exist within government and the, the kind of work that you do? Or do you think that there is less resistance to a Black man being able to advance up the, up the ranks within the governmental structure? Yeah, government de- deals with the same issues as far mm-hmm. as trying to climb that ladder. I know in my bureau, it's, it's kind of top heavy. People have been there five, 10 years already. And it's like, similar to the corporate um, sector, you kind of have to move around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Move around. I think there's issues because sometimes your advancement depends on people that you don't necessarily work with on a day-to-day basis. So they don't really see all the greatness that you achieve or things that you do. So it's very important for people like myself to get in front of managers on a regular basis, letting them know what you're working on and what you've been achieving and just making sure that you, you're getting that face time with them. And then even at the high level where people are saying positive things because they're seeing your work ethic. They're also seeing your, the, the results of the work that you've been doing because you've been telling about them about it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the struggle is there, especially with uh, Black folks. I think it's um, it's tough because you don't see too many Black directors or deputy directors in State Department, even like assistant secretaries, ambassadors, um, secretaries. You, you don't really see that in the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you might have people that maybe become directors, but it's, it's hard, especially working with the State Department, because in order to move up, you kind of really have to be in the foreign service. It's mm-hmm. more pushed on foreign service people, people that have been traveling, you know, working and moving up like that. But if you're a civil servant, there's less opportunities to actually advance in the State Department. So what has kept you sort of in this space in spite of the challenges? Is I mean, I think it's cool. I think it's I think it's work that, you know, 10 years ago I may have not seen myself doing, you know. Uh, you know, just thinking back in high school, like traveling to Africa, different places, even now, you know, telling my telling family and friends, like, okay, I've been to this place, this is how it is there, showing different pictures. Like it's it's hard to believe. And I, I like the work, you know, I do a lot of writing. I promote or see my impact in some some policy, and I see that I'm advancing. You know, I haven't reached the deputy director or director level, but I see that I'm advancing, and I see sometimes that people appreciate my work. 
not just my colleagues, but also the people, the host governments, the host nations, the, um, the religious leader, like, hey, Otis, I, I really appreciate all the work you've done, you know, and, you know, trying to keep us together. And I think that makes all the difference, man, when people recognize that, that you're, you're doing something or they just appreciate you being out there. You know, I remember my first day in Uganda and the lady was like, wow, like, like, I really look forward to working with you because, you know, you're, you're the first black diplomat we met, you know, and of course they, people, we, right now there's a black ambassador to Uganda, but like, as far as like the working level, you don't really see black people at different levels. Um, so being able to like be a representative of the United States and being the first person that people interact with that's a black American especially on that level, you know, I can wear a suit or just being the first person that they see um, that's a representative of my community and the United States as a whole. I think that's a cool, that's cool. And I, I've been advancing, but I would, I think nonetheless, like there's opportunities to move around, still being international affairs. Like you have Intel community, you have USAID. Uh, so there's, there's other opportunities out there. And I imagine as a Black man, in certain instances, depending on where you are geographically, it could be hard to detach psychologically and emotionally from what's happening to people who look like you. How have you coped with that and that you're in this programmatic role where you might be looking at statistical analysis, you know, Black and white governmental uh, information, but you're very aware of the realities of some of this violence and how it's impacting your people in a sense. Um, So do you do you think about that? Do you have to process the the emotions and some of the psychological effects of that as well? It's tough. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Um, but you, unfortunately, you have to kind of get detached a little bit. Like, because you see this ex- violent extremist organization going into, like, um, internally displaced people camps. Mm-hmm killing dozens of people. We like, bro, like, I couldn't imagine somebody just coming to homes, beheading people in DC. And I'm just like, wow, like they're taking lives. Mm-hmm. Is 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 ridiculous. And like you see how lives are valued differently. And you know, it's almost just it's very similar to being black in America. Mm-hmm. See how our lives are treated. And taken for granted. So it's like how you progress and like keep moving. It's like you almost you don't have a choice. You just have to because you know you, you try to look at the bright side of things and just keep pushing and just do what you can. But like at the same time, you hear about horrific things happening throughout the world, mm-hmm. especially our communities. And that's actually a great segue. Uh, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day? Man. Okay, so I don't know why this is coming up, so I feel like guys say, say this one, but um, in Ethiopia, they were, they're, they're still having a civil war, right? Mm-hmm. And we were trying to figure out how can we at least improve the situation a little bit better? How can we Without, without putting boots on the ground, figure out, okay, how can we coordinate with other countries to also put, a, put out a statement saying, 
we stand against um, sexual violence against women mm-hmm. and, you know, other atrocities, uh, mass violence and all these things. But we had to focus on conflict-based sexual violence because a lot of people in Ethiopia at that time were being raped So uh, during this conflict. So we worked with, like, Canada, um, the European Union, other European countries, the UK, to put out this, Australia, to put out this statement um, saying that what we denounce and what we are promoting um, to basically, you know, of course we don't want any conflict, but we're like, at the very least, you need to stop these uh, atrocities against women. So we had already drafted the points that we wanted to put out. And I had to basically, for the embassy to deliver the points, we had to like send them a special report like to actually do that. Mm-hmm. So it's called the Marsh Cable. So you're telling them, the, the embassy, to do something because you want, they can do it, but for State Department records, you know, to make sure that we're covered when Congress reviews any of our actions or it has to be on paper, like it has to be on record. So you do a demarche cable to say, okay, we're telling the embassy to do this. So have the points. Um, and the embassy was meeting like soon with the Ethiopian counterparts, but they were going to meet them with other international community partners, right? So I think that that one the next day we we found out they they were meeting with those individuals and but that day we found out late at night we were supposed to have a holiday mm-hmm. it was supposed to be like a federal holiday i don't know what happened like i forgot what it was what which holiday but we found out we we were off so i'm chilling relaxing like all right man shoot, this is friday man I started like getting emails. I might have got a call from somebody I don't normally work with. It might have been like, yeah, somebody I don't normally work with. Like, yeah, like for this, for them to say, you know, get put this statement out and to actually have this discussion, we need we need that cable to come out. We need that Demarche cable to come out. And I'm like, so with the Demarche cable, you got to get clearances or like other people got to review from different bureaus. And this mm-hmm. is a holiday, and. I'm able to get some of the clearances, but then I had to get some more. Cl- my my boss, who was like the assistant secretary at the time of my bureau, so he's like the top person of the Bureau of Conflict Stabilization Operations. He's like, yeah, you need to make sure these two or three people need to clear as well. And I'm like, bro, that's a holiday. He emails me that, so I call. I like somebody suggests like maybe you should call him now. You don't normally just hot rank like that. You don't normally mm-hmm. just call the assistant secretary. But I was like, bro, you telling me to do this. I got we we gotta talk, like make this make sense. So I called him and I was like, Are you sure you want me to do it? He like, all right, just get these these couple of clearances and then we should be fine. So I called him to discuss what we had to do. And and then I actually called those other people. And they were able to review in like within an hour or so. But granted, my holiday was gone. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a regular day for a lot of people. So I felt like I was working, um, put something out and like work with like the international community to put this statement out that was so important in Ethiopia 
is very something minute, but it's something we felt like was important and could change like the conflict dynamics and actually impact a lot of people positively. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was definitely extraordinary when it was an ordinary day. And it really tracks back to what you were saying earlier about that exposure. And sometimes those opportunities for visibility come in a package that's very inconvenient, right? And so we have the way we want to do it. We, we want those sort of orchestrated moments where we can get the shine and, and get the opportunity. But sometimes you're in a situation where it's pressure and it's discomfort and it's a time when you're supposed to be off or something that shouldn't even be your problem that right. you now have to deal with. And But the blessing in it is often it may put you in a room that urgency has called for in a way that you never would have gotten to otherwise. Right. So I love that example. I appreciate it, man. (laughs) I'm the guy, you know. So um, before we let you get out of here, I do want to talk a little bit about the work that you you do and the travel that you've done and how that's impacted you personally. How have you been able to maintain some semblance of a personal life while chasing these dreams professionally that are not just some desk job, but, you know, a nine to five where you, you get to be stateside and home, even though you mentioned that that is a possibility soon, but how has that played out with trying to maintain some normal normalcy personally? Yeah. Like it is difficult. Um, that's one of the main reasons I didn't want to join the foreign service. Mm-hmm. I, I knew it would be tough to like try to start a family. Now I'm single. I was in a relationship when I started working with the state department. I'm no longer in a relationship, unfortunately. And I think distance did play a role in that. And even now dating knowing that I have to, there's a possible high possibility that I'll probably travel again. It's like letting people know, Hey, like, just let you know, if, if we, if we like, this is something that we'll have to like figure out. So, you know, everybody's not, everybody's not with it. You know, some people, if they feel like you are committed and you're committed to them and y'all made a committed commitment to together, to be together, they'll rock with it. They're like, all right, cool. Um, but you definitely got to figure out the, the flight situation. Like, there's <laughs> going to be a couple of round trips. And then um, also friendships, man. It is difficult um, keeping those up. But like group chats have definitely helped keep people engaged, uh, you know, what I'm doing, how things are going. And then just whatever topics, make sure I'm engaging in them. So people, you know, keep me in fresh mind. Then I've been, there's been times I, I got mad at my line brothers. They say, oh, yeah, I was just in D.C. I was like, oh, you was in D.C. You didn't hit me up. Like, man, I thought you were, you were abroad or something. I'm like, nah, bro, I always check first. <laughs> so it's like, it's those little struggles. But like, it's, it's and then it's, it's a couple of weddings I missed, man, mm-hmm. uh, would, would try. A couple of weddings. And then it's like other work opportunities that I may have had to skip because something personal, like a 10-year anniversary or something like that was coming up. So. It's tough. It's tough. And it's like, it's something that people have to consider if they do want to work in international affairs. Like, all right, how is this? What does this really look like? And I know for me, that's one of the reasons I I want to like slow down on my traveling because Mm -hmm. I would like to find a wife and start a family. And I don't think most Black women are going to be down for all that traveling, especially y'all being as um, successful as y'all are. So, like, you know, so I got to make it work, figure it out. 
And do you think if you were to settle in a way where you only might travel out of the country for two weeks or what have you, would you miss the thrill? Sure. Sure. But like, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll travel as a family, do the whole tourist thing. It'll be okay. (laughs) And I would ask that question because people, you know, they, they put certain career aspirations on the back seat for marriage and family. And then they resent the fact that they, you know, that they had to do it and they miss those opportunities. Yeah. I think I've, I'm happy. You know what I'm saying? I, I did, I did a lot. I can look, I can look back on a lot of experiences. So you got to find time. You don't want to like put everything off, mm-hmm. but like you have to make sure that at least you have a plan because now I can look back and say, well, I did do this. I did do that. Like I, I can, I'm good. I think I'm good. So I think maybe people should try to live a little bit, you know, before, before settling down because you don't want to have that resentment. Mm-hmm. That, would, that would be terrible. You know, if you have an opportunity to travel abroad for a couple of years, do that and try to make the relationship work. If it doesn't, it wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. You know, but now like, and try to do it when you, in your early or your late teens or your 20s or your early 30s. But like mid 35, maybe you might want to slow down. I don't know. Or you <laughs> just start having kids when you're 16 and then like do it the flip way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like you can do a little travel and all that extra stuff. So thinking about that time where you may be here more, what vision do you have for yourself in terms of being able to facilitate the advancement of your people on home soil? Yeah, like uh, that's a good question. It brings me back to um point, just personal finance. Like I, I have like, I think I just have to be more creative because of course I would like to do some consulting if like a business wants to go abroad, do some work in Africa, I would like to help them figure figure it out. Mm-hmm. What do they need to be concerned about and how could they mitigate different risks of their business or their growth of their business? And, but on the personal finance tip, I have like, that's something I'm passionate about as well. Mm-hmm. Just knowing money and knowing what to do with money, making the best use for your money, whether it's investing, saving, and just budgeting. You know, I think that's a side gig I would like to pursue. And then also just artistically, there is a few things that I feel like I can be doing as far as writing or just speaking to people, Um, whether it's like just managing groups or facilitating people to have a good time. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I think um, we're at a a good place to to end on. I'm excited to see what, what happens for you on this side, right? And, and and having had so many great experiences already with respect to traveling abroad, but having these passions for your people at home too. I'm, I'm interested to see how the skills you've gathered around the world really translate to the work and the impact that you can do at home as well. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank, thanks for the time to speak to me. No, thanks for joining. Now, we ask everybody the same question. I don't know what your answer is going to be as a government employee, but we tell everybody, Tell the people where they can find you online. <laughs> I mean, you can find me LinkedIn, Otis Holloway. Uh, you can also find me at Odie Got You Rock, and you'll see some of those uh, creative uh, juices flowing. And repeat that. Repeat that. Odie, O-D-I-E, Got Ya, Y-A, Rockin', no G. And yeah, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter. I'm usually trying to invoke critical conversation or a couple of jokes. 
invoking that critical conversation while sprinkling in that Georgia slang as well. I understand yeah. it. Doubt. <laughs> <laughs> to our listeners, you know the drill. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do what you need to do. Like, share, subscribe, tell someone else about it. We spoke earlier in this episode about lack of access to information within our communities with respect to opportunities, internships, and all the stuff that, that comes you know, with that. So to the extent that you are interested in this space or you know a young person who is, go ahead and reach out to Otis as well. We have to create our own information network and help each other uh, to create opportunities and better access as well so that we're better equipped uh, for what's out there in our careers. And after you've done all of that, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.